Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Just about 500 years ago, Martin Luther was upset about corruption in the church, and he laid out his concerns in what is often known as the 95 Theses. He may have also nailed them to a church door. That's how the legend goes. Now, you might assume that the Catholic Church would be angry, and you would be right. The church questioned Luther. They eventually excommunicated him. They branded him a heretic. But it was too late, according to historian Neil Ferguson. The printing press, which had taken off in the preceding decades, had already spread Luther's ideas. If all he'd had was uh, a pen, a piece of paper and a nail, and all he'd done was nail the 95 Theses to the church door, he would have been, I think, just another heretic burnt at the stake at some point. But the technology that Johannes Gutenberg had introduced was now incredibly popular. And Ferguson says that even an institution as powerful as the church couldn't do much about it. This was a fundamental transformation of the public sphere, and I think it's the key to understanding why the Reformation, which was really propelled by a social network of like-minded people, was unstoppable. No matter how hard the Roman Catholic Church and its supporters tried, they just could not kill the network. Notice Ferguson's term there, social network. In a new book, The Square and the Tower, he argues that a social network is a lot more than a movie. It's a force that has changed history by repeatedly giving power to all sorts of individuals, enlightened, evil, and everything in between. And social networks, which have always existed, have gotten supercharged when they were married to powerful technology like the printing press or the internet. And interestingly, every time they crop up, those network technologies have proved to have a lot in common. I think we're seeing the polarization that we saw after the printing press was introduced. We're seeing the crazy stuff going viral. We're also seeing that the small world effects, you know, the world appears to get smaller because networks reduce the distance between any two individuals. We're seeing the way in which networks constantly, they shapeshift. They're not stable entities, they're constantly changing. We see how networks can attack networks and we can see how networks increase rather than reduce inequality. These are my six laws of networks, if you like, based on network science. In the 500 years since the 95 Theses were written, regimes have risen and fallen, countries have disappeared, new countries have been created, but Protestantism is still hanging in there. Neil Ferguson is a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing, and he notes that networks and hierarchies have battled for millennia. And our moment, like Luther's, is one in which technology has given networks a trump card. After all, consider the fact that our current president started his political climb with a huge advantage over everyone else in the primary. He had an enormous network of followers. The top-down, neatly structured Republican Party didn't really want him. But that didn't matter. What used to be a pretty hierarchical Republican Party where the decisions were made by the party and people like Jeb Bush were sort of ritually nominated and selected as candidates, that was all blown up by Trump, who essentially unleashed his own network, which was a quite different structure built up on reality TV and in in business. And that really changed the whole architecture of Republican politics uh, in a way that I think we're still struggling to understand. My sense is when I go to Washington that the political class has only just begun to figure out what hit it back in November 2016. We'll talk more in a few minutes about how networks are changing our lives now. 
But first, back to the technology that foreshadowed this moment, the printing press. Printing turned out to be so powerful, it didn't just start a religious revolution, it sparked an enlightenment that enabled inventors and scientific pioneers and philosophers all over the world to learn about the work that other people were doing. It flooded communities with political pamphlets that sparked the American Revolution and the French Revolution. It changed how we made and sold goods and spread information about how to mechanize factories, the Industrial Revolution. But then, Ferguson says, the winds of technology shifted, and new inventions snatched power from people who were trying to network and handed it to autocrats and oligarchs. Networks started to wither, and hierarchies became emboldened. Railroads and telegraphs to begin with, then steamships, later telephones, and then finally wireless radio, the medium that you and I are now mm-hmm. communicating on. These technologies, unlike the printing press, lent themselves to central control. Mm. Johannes Gutenberg, who was the kind of inventor of the European printing press, couldn't control what he'd created. He did not become Bill Gates. In fact, he didn't make much money at all. Mm. And the ownership of printing was very decentralised. That wasn't true of these later technologies, railroads, telegraphs, etc., which in fact quite quickly came under central control and usually government control mm-hmm. in most countries. Uh, So I think that's something that explains why in the 19th and in most of the 20th century, it wasn't too hard uh, for centralised control to be imposed, often by authoritarian regimes. You can draw a line from Bonaparte, from Napoleon, all the way to Stalin, uh, showing that it became progressively easier for authoritarian hierarchical structures of power to use 19th century technology and essentially impose their control Hmm. to the point that social networks they didn't control were illegal, which they were in the Soviet Union under Stalin. But the technology that had empowered Luther, that empowered Thomas Paine to say, you know, we we should do something about this British government that's, you know, that had really empowered the American Revolution in a lot of ways, that technology was still lying around in the 1800s and 1900s. So why were these centralized forces able to eclipse the people could still write pamphlets and distribute them? They did. And of course, uh, what's fascinating about the 19th century is this interplay between essentially conservative hierarchical structures and the would-be revolutionaries uh, who kept trying again and again to reenact what had begun in in France in 1789, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and they failed. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult indeed to do a revolution if the government controls the railroads Mm -hmm. and the telegraphs. And the Bolsheviks knew that, which is why they moved so quickly to control the central railroad hubs, Moscow and Petrograd. Once they controlled the railway network, which was early on in the Russian Civil War, as well as the telegraph system, the attempts to dislodge them by white armies were doomed to fail. Hmm. So although the Bolsheviks had used those older technologies and used them pretty effectively, they knew that if they didn't get control of the more modern technologies of communication, namely railroads and telegraphs and telephones, though those weren't particularly widely distributed in Russia, they wouldn't be able to win. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Neil Ferguson, author of the book The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. So we talked at the beginning about Martin Luther, and you argue that somewhere around the 1970s, the world again shifted to being a more networked place, sort of echoing what had happened with the printing press. What developments were happening around the 70s that made that happen? Two things, really. Uh, One, 
the uh, Department of Defense essentially let a bunch of scientists and researchers in California do whatever they damn well liked. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that that complete loss of central control, I think, explains why ARPANET was, was born, why mm. the, the experiment with the, uh, the original internet began. And at the same time, in the same neighborhood, uh, Northern California, a bunch of people started uh, building personal computers to mm-hmm. see if they could make the computer something that was uh, a readily accessible consumer good. And this combination of early internet and early personal computer is the beginning of a transformation that is ongoing to this day. Mm-hmm. And the original idea was, hey, we need a communication system that's sufficiently decentralized that if there's a nuclear strike, it won't completely collapse. Mm-hmm. Go figure it out. That's really the beginning of ARPANET. Mm-hmm. And it starts by being, you know, Stanford connecting to, to UCLA and trying to send messages uh, uh, through through the system. Mm-hmm. And nobody's paying any attention to this in, in the Pentagon. They're, they're busy losing the Vietnam War. So that's really what makes, I think that's what makes the internet happen. Because the Soviets had a similar plan, and, and you can amusingly call it the internet. They start building a computer system which is supposed to kind of be the same. But of course, it's the Soviet Union. So there's central control. And at mm-hmm. some point, the Soviet ministry just, Soviet finance ministry just cuts off the money and the whole thing folds. So I think this is a real turning point in our history comparable with the printing press in Europe. Mm. From the 1970s onwards, number one, it gets steadily harder for the President of the United States to exert the kind of control that had been possible in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, it's just gone by the by the end of the 1970s. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder for an imperial presidency to be credible. That's not the internet. That's just the media. That's just the newspapers uh, destroying Nixon and proceeding right. to, to undermine Carter. And I think the internet takes its leap forward from that moment of disruption of hierarchical power that I think was central to the 1970s. Hmm. Um, So I want to jump ahead to our current moment. Um, One of the things that you write is that 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 technology that got going in the 70s really began to change U.S. politics in a big way in like just about the last decade or so. Um, And President Trump is a great example of that change because this is a guy who capitalized on a pre-existing network, right? He'd been an entertainment star, and then he had a campaign apparatus that understood that um, these targeted Facebook advertisements, they were cheap, they were effective. Um, But it seems to me, uh, and you touched on this before, that the Trump story is bigger than right versus left. It's more like Republican versus insurgent, you have to feel sorry for political scientists. They'd worked out this whole story. The party decides it's all prearranged uh, and therefore collectively missed Trump as a phenomenon because they had just assumed the rules hadn't changed. But the rules had completely changed. Uh, the Trump network had begun disrupting the Republican hierarchy uh, using a curious mixture of cable TV and social media. And there was a feedback loop where shows that featured Trump would find their social media hits would surge. So they would mm-hmm. feature Trump some more. Morning Joe was a good example of this, the, the show on TV that he right. uh, watches and regularly appeared on. So I think uh, what Trump brought to the, uh, the the contest for the Republican nomination was a pre-existing large followership on social 
media that he'd built up over the years as a reality TV personality. And he unleashed that against a completely unprepared Republican establishment who didn't know what hit them. I mean, they didn't realize that that just calling Jeb Bush low energy on Twitter was enough to destroy him, Mm. no matter what the party hierarchy tried to do. But I, I think there's a lot of kind of slightly nerdy research going on at the moment. You know, did cable TV matter more than social media, which misses out the feedback loop? What perhaps the academics don't see is the way in which TV producers were watching their social media numbers. And that was part of what made them keep giving Trump free airtime. It's well known that he got a ton of free airtime. But what was driving that, I think, was his existing mastery of of Twitter as a way of generating news about him and then views of, of the shows that he appeared on. So let's talk about um, networks on the other side, which certainly exists now in the age of Trump. You think about like the Women's March that of 2017 and 2018, both huge, huge marches, things that people connected to through Twitter, through Facebook, you know, all these different ways of connecting now that didn't exist essentially 20, 30 years ago. What do you make of the other side of this, the, the network that has arisen in response to the, the Trump network? I think it's extremely important to realize that two, indeed many more than two, can play at this game. Mm. And if the Republicans around Trump, uh, the populists perhaps better described, got Facebook and understood Twitter and and were able to edge ahead of of Hillary Clinton's campaign, it is perfectly possible that the next generation of Democratic leaders and indeed Democratic activists will be able to do something similar and outdo uh, Trump on social media. That is the potential that exists in the Women's March, uh, in the so-called resistance. It is visible in the energizing of the democratic base uh, that we are seeing in a bunch of different metrics. So potentially, we find ourselves in the midst of a backlash that could conceivably deliver the House to the Democrats this coming November. Mm -hmm. On the other hand... Uh, I think it's important to recognise that a lot could go wrong with that strategy. Just getting people out in the street in large numbers is not a victory in its own right. Mm -hmm. And so you can't at this point simply rule out the Republicans hanging on to the House. You can't even rule out a Trump re-election because I think it's too early to proclaim success in playing his game and, Mm -hmm. as it were, catching up in the social media arms race. I don't think the Democrats have done that yet. What lessons do you think modern social networks like Facebook and Twitter can learn from the social networks of the past? Lesson number one, which I think is not being learned, is that you're not going to create a happy, clappy global community by just connecting everybody. The reality is that even relatively small social networks will tend to polarize. There's plenty of sociological research on that. And the polarization that we see today online, on Facebook, on Twitter and elsewhere, is a real problem. And the network platforms contribute to it. The way the algorithms are configured, there are incentives on Facebook and Twitter to post extreme content and fake news. Hmm. If you don't do something about that, I think very quickly, the backlash which you can already see against Facebook and Twitter is going to gather momentum. 
Uh, it's very interesting that they're now the least popular of the big technology companies, substantially behind uh, Amazon, mm. uh, which has done a much better job of, of public relations mm. than Apple. So I think that there's a major issue here. And I still sense... Uh, that they're underestimating it because the response to all the crisis since the election has essentially been, we'll tweak the news feed and hire some content moderators. If you think 10,000 people on relatively low pay can monitor the billions of posts that appear on Facebook in any year, you are dreaming. Mm. So I think there's there's this kind of fantasy that self-regulation will do if we just tweak the algorithm and hire some, some content monitors. And that fantasy could be blown up. The minute Washington really wakes up to the threat posed by the social network platforms to the functioning of our democracy, and although there's been a great deal of discussion in the last 12 months, I don't think Washington has fully woken up mm. to the problems that have been created by the emergence of these network platforms as the dominant sphere for public discussion of politics in America right. today. When you look out, you know, 10 years, 20 years, do you feel like we are headed back towards hierarchy? Are we headed more towards this kind of decentralized network? Like, do you feel like there's a, you know, a trajectory in history right now? Just a few years ago, it seemed as if the proliferation of, uh, of network platforms through the Internet would spread democracy mm -hmm. as far and wide as possible. Yeah. The Arab dictators would go. And, and if the Chinese tried to censor the internet, they'd be trying to nail jello to a wall, Bill Clinton's famous line. Right. Well, it looks a lot different now. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly authoritarian regimes, not least Russia's, have figured out how to use social media to their own advantage. And I think more, most impressively of all, the Chinese Communist Party has established an extraordinary relationship with the big Chinese technology companies, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, that essentially means that the big data of Chinese citizens is available on demand to Xi Jinping. Mm. That does not look like good news for uh, liberal democracy. So I think that uh, we are now beginning to see that at best, these technologies are a double-edged sword as far as politics is concerned. At worst, they may be a boon, uh, not just to authoritarians, but to totalitarians. Mm. Neil Ferguson is a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He is also the author, most recently, of The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. Neil, thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. One more note before we go on the social network spawned by Martin Luther in the early 1500s. The 95 theses were originally printed in Latin, which was the scholarly and religious language of the time. But Luther's message, which spread like wildfire through Germany and then through much of Europe, really got traction when it was printed in German, the language of ordinary people, not kings or popes. We've got more on our website about how networks have changed the world, including an interview about the history and psychology of conspiracy theories. That's at innovationhub.org.